After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. Tonight I'd like to tell a story and offer some teachings that maybe buoy up your heart in this time. The story is a story about medicine and its ancient story from India comes from my dear friend and colleague, Michael Mead, who runs Mosaic Multicultural Foundation. And if you're interested in fantastic myths and stories for our time, go to mosaicmulticulturalfoundation.org, their website or .com. So this story in India takes place some long time ago when a young boy was out playing with a ball in the fields near his home and a poisonous snake came up and the boy was interested in the snake and the snake bit the boy with a load of venom and the boy screamed and became violently ill and the parents rushed out and saw the snake as it was disappearing and saw the snake bite and the boy was already very sick, and they knew that the hospital was many miles away, and they only had a cart to take them, and they didn't know what to do. So they carried the boy to the nearest holy shrine, where there was a yogi, a holy man, tending that. And they said, we can't get to the hospital. Please help us heal this boy, our son. And the holy man said, I wish I could do this, but I'm not a healer. And they said, but you must help us. We have no other way. Is there nothing you can do for us? And he said, I'm not sure. And they said, well, we've heard that if a great yogi, if a yogi makes an act of truth, that that will be healing medicine. And the yogi paused and he said, then I will do so. And he placed his hand on the head of the young boy. And he said, I must tell the truth. I look like a renunciate, but actually I'm not a very happy renunciate. And I sneak off to the marketplace to eat things I shouldn't and do things I shouldn't. And I probably should be living a different kind of a life. And in telling this shocking truth, the boys eyes opened 
and he regained consciousness. But he still couldn't move. And the yogi said to the father, now you must make an act of truth. And the father placed his hand on the heart of the boy. And he said, I'm known in the village and the community around as a man who has wealth and some power. But truthfully, I'm not very generous. I've been selfish in what I've done. I haven't been that honest in my dealings. And now as an act of truth, I must confess this. And sure enough, the boy sat up and gazed at his father with eyes of love as if to forgive him everything. And the father felt his heart melting. And then finally, because the boy couldn't walk, the mother came over and held the feet of the boy. And she said, I love you more than anyone in the world, my son. And frankly, my marriage has gone dead. I love you. But my husband has been working all the time and hasn't been all that nice to me. And I don't have many more feelings for him. And by this act of truth, may you be healed. And the boy stood up and he began to dance. He took his ball in his hands. And the mother looked at the father and said, by my act of truth, may our marriage be reborn. And the father gazed with relief and eyes of tenderness at his wife and said, and by this act, may we become a true loving family again. And the yogi smiled and thought, now what should I do? And what he did, I will leave to your imagination. And that's the end of the story. When you hear this story, or at least when I hear it, I think of the powerful need we have in this time for acts of truth. In the time of so much fake news and so much spin, where somebody said in a bumper sticker, make 1984 fiction again, we find ourselves in the dilemma and there's so much needed to build a better world. It has to be on a foundation of truth. The divisiveness of the society has been revealed. The racism and the uh, mistreatment of whole classes and categories of human beings for generations. The pandemic has shown the inequality, the discrimination, the struggles, the painful history. And someone, you know, said, we hear that we're all in the same boat. But actually, some people are in yachts and some are in rowboats and some are just clinging to the edge of a floating piece of wood, hoping they can survive. And so we need to tell the truth about our lives and our society if we're to heal it, if we're to sit up and move and dance. Now, in this talk, I'd like to go further and build on this story of truth telling with seven verses from the sage Atisha, who is a master in India and Tibet, and particularly relevant for difficult times. And you can listen and sense what might be of value. His first verse, what, how to keep yourself in this time, 
along with telling the truth, is a truth called Explore the Nature of Timeless Awareness. For we've lost our way in this culture. We've lost our moral compass. We're not just in an economic or a health crisis. We're in a moral crisis and a spiritual crisis. And here we are as human beings born into these bodies in the midst of this mystery. And now that the skies are a bit clearer, you can go out and see the night stars and the billions of galaxies. What is this universe? And who are we in this vastness? My teacher, Ajahn Chah, invites us to become what he called the one who knows, Sikibuto, the witness to the vastness, the witness to mystery. Who we are is timeless awareness itself, born into these bodies. We are spiritual beings. And as Kalu Rinpoche, a great Tibetan Lama, said, you live in illusion and the appearance of things, but there is a reality. And when you remember this, you will realize that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. We've been so busy in our culture, and now we've been forced to go inside, to be quieter, to stop running and doing so much, and to listen more deeply, to become that witness of this mystery of how will it unfold. It's so uncertain. And when we rest in a vast perspective, like the Ojibwe say, sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while I'm being carried by winds across the sky, the mind opens and says, here we are today in this mystery. Let me look anew. And there opens space and freedom and loving awareness and laughter. And I think about visiting my dear friend Ramdas, who died, as you know, in December this year. Shortly after he had his major stroke, which was almost 20 years ago, and he had been in the ICU down near Stanford University for a time, they didn't even think he would survive. And finally, when he made it out and he could hardly speak, he was put into a rehabilitation hospital for quite a long time to learn to use parts of his body again to begin to find language. And I visited him and held his hands and gazed. we gazed at each other with love. And I brought him a big photo, a picture of the sage Ramana Maharshi. And the reason I did it, I said to Ramdas, is because Ramana taught mostly in silence. And I said, even if you don't have much language, you can gaze at people with love, as he did, and you can be the silent one who teaches. And I found a place to put it on the wall after I put it in his hands. And I wondered, now, what will Ramdas say? And he looked at me and he said, he pulled out a little card from under his pillow, a picture of his guru, Neem Karoli Baba, and he put it in my hands. And he said, I'll trade you one Ramana Maharshi and a Mickey Mantle for one Neem Karoli Baba and a Babe Ruth. And it was like we were trading baseball cards of gurus. 
And I thought, whatever happened around us, he's still in there. And he's seeing from the perspective of vastness and ease and joy, even in the midst of this difficulty. And this is what Atisha means by exploring the nature of vastness itself and timeless awareness. Then the second of his teachings is don't be swayed by outer circumstances. We have all heard this teaching, and yet it's useful to be reminded, dear ones, the heart has an untouchable freedom. It's our true nature. It's the nature of consciousness itself. All things appear and disappear, and awareness remains. So that when Victor Frankl left, famously left the concentration camps and said, we who lived in the concentration camps can remember those who went through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they showed the final and greatest of all human freedoms, the freedom to choose our spirit no matter what the circumstance. So here we are, we live in the human realm, the realm of birth and death. And we can focus on the 1% who will die and the tragedies and the loss, and we need to, and to grieve and to honor and protect and heal as we can. And we can also focus on the 99% who will live and what are the lessons to be learned from this upheaval and tragedy. And we see the worldly winds of gain and loss and pleasure and pain and fame and disrepute and praise and blame. Human incarnation is like this. To not be swayed by outer circumstance is a kind of ideal, and it's a good one. It's a beautiful one. But of course, we all flunk the course. Somebody blames us. We lose something that matters. We get afraid of something. Something's painful and not pleasant and so forth, and we get upset. But when we understand not being swayed by outer circumstances, we're not even so swayed when we flunk the course. We say, oh, yeah, I think I'll take it again. You know, I can learn. You can't yet know the lessons of this course. What you can know is the lessons of the heart. Let me read you a story. Jerry Flaxseed was a physician. And he describes in his work the revulsion he felt toward a patient named Frank, an angry and obese homeless man who had diabetes, was unbathed, and had gangrene legs and open sores. And when he did not take his meds for his mental disorder, Frank would flail his arms and spew curses at all those around him, and he was admitted repeatedly to the hospital. For Dr. Flaxseed, Frank was a patient who was hard to love. One day, Frank was brought to the local hospital with congestive heart failure. The diagnosis was serious, and Dr. Flaxseed tended him as best as he could. Then he went down the hall to tend other patients 
and notice a crowd headed toward Frank's room. 20 members of the down-home neighborhood church in whose shelter Frank sometimes slept had arrived. They brought flowers, homemade food. They chanted, they sang hymns. They gazed at Frank and created a chorus of care and communion. And when Dr. Flaxted returned to Frank's room after treating another patient on the ward, he saw that Frank was smiling, bathed in their love, and he realized he had never really seen Frank at all. So don't be swayed by outer circumstances. Sometimes the difficulties are the things we need to teach us. And they're the place that allows us to open our heart. Then Atisha goes on, consider all phenomena to be dreams. Like a star at dawn, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a phantom, a dream. Shakespeare called it all a play. The world seemed solid enough. You know, you hit the table, you hit the table leg with your foot, and it hurts your toe. Everything seems solid and unchanging. But part of that unchangingness is our own brain, which takes the ever-changing input to our senses. And in our nervous system, filters it and stabilizes it just like the stabilizing algorithm in your camera now that will keep your jittery hands from jittering the picture and instead you get a stable video that's made. Our brain does that. Our eyeballs are constantly moving. The sights and colors are really pixels of experience, but we make them with our mind into something solid. But the coronavirus has shown us that it all turns out to be rather flimsy, doesn't it? The economy, the social structures, our health system, it's tentative, it's empty, it can change in a moment. And this is part of the mystery and the emptiness of it. Where is 2019 with the lowest unemployment, you know, in decades? Where is the year 2000, Y2K. Where is President George H.W. Bush in that whole time period? If you were alive then, it's all back with the pyramids and the dinosaurs, the Middle Ages and the Roman Empire and the, you know, the first humans in caves. It all went back to where it comes from, out of nothing. It appears each day in this miraculous way. Now, you may not think it's like a dream, even though COVID is showing us that things can change as swiftly as the swish of a horse's tail. In a presentation on climate change, a friend showed a photo taken from a window about 10 stories up on Fifth Avenue for the Macy's Day Parade around 1903. And looking down Fifth Avenue were hundreds of horses and horse-drawn carriages. Then this friend showed a photo only five or six years later 
from the same 10th story window for the Macy's Day Parade, looking down Fifth Avenue, and there was nary a horse to be seen. There were all these new electric and steam and gasoline buggies and automobiles of different kinds. Our entire way of moving and culture changed like that. Consider all phenomena to be like a dream. You sleep every day. It's the weirdest, most mysterious thing. We love to be unconscious for seven or eight hours. Oh, may I have some sweet unconsciousness. Isn't that wild? And the dreams with it, all kinds, you know. And we make all these stories. Consider it all to be dreams. You will get sick someday. You will live. You will die. As Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh has said, there is another reality. This body is not me. I'm life without boundaries. I've never been born, and I've never died. Since before time, I've been free. Birth and death are only doorways through which we pass, sacred thresholds on a game of hide-and-seek. So laugh with me, hold my hand, for we will meet again tomorrow and at every moment in all forms of life. Who we are is consciousness itself taken in this human form. We are the timeless awareness. You are loving awareness born into this body. And we get to enact this dream and to live in it. Now, the big question is, if it's all a dream, does this mean that nothing matters? And one of the great Tibetan masters, Marpa, was weeping when his grandson died in an accident in the mountains. And the disciples came and said, you told us to take it all as a dream, to not weep over anything, that it's all an illusion. And with tears in his eyes, Marpa looked up and said, and the death of a child you love is the greatest illusion of all, and continued to weep. What we need to do as human beings, our task in this remarkable world is to remember our timeless nature and our social security number. We have to remember the reality of vastness to become the loving witness of it, to have the spacious heart, like Ram does to say, I'll trade you one Neem Karoli Baba and a Ted Williams for, you know, one Ramana Harshi and a Babe Ruth card. To have that playfulness and joy and lightness of heart to say, I can enter into this world and care for it beautifully and at the same time know that it is tentative and it will also disappear as I will. And then instead of making it less valuable, it makes every day and everything we do precious. Then the next saying from Atisha, don't brood over the faults of others. Now, when people come on a retreat and they look at their own mind for the first time, they get quiet on a 10-day retreat at Spirit Rock and they've never sat with themselves. Sometimes they come running in to speak with a teacher. They're appalled. 
I never saw so much racket of thoughts and waterfall of ideas and things and so many hundreds of judgments. One person came in and said, help, I'm locked in a phone booth with a lunatic. What do I do? But of course, you know, that's just the mind. It's not who you really are. Don't brood over the faults of others. Don't have some great ideal about how it's supposed to be. This is the Zen master and dear friend Norman Fisher saying, ideals are reflections of our deeply spiritual nature. But as we know, ideals can be poison if we take them in large quantities or if we take them incorrectly. In other words, if we take them not as ideals, but as concrete realities. Ideals should inspire us to surpass ourselves, which we need to aspire to do if we are to be truly human, and which we can never actually do exactly because we are truly human. Ideals are tools for inspiration, not realities in themselves. The fact that we've so often missed this point accounts for the sorry history of religion and human civilization. If rightly understood, ideals make us lighthearted and give us a sense of direction. Don't brood over the faults of others. We have so many views about how we should be and how others should be, but it turns out that they're usually one-sided in some fashion or another. There's a way in which, let me see, I'll tell you the story that we think we know. I was interviewing masters and teachers and monks and nuns some years ago for this book, After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. And one older nun remembers her early years. She said, in my second community, there were only a dozen nuns. I liked all but two of them. One was lazy and the other was self-absorbed. After my first year, I was in the kitchen complaining to a friend who said, you know, these are really not bad people. What is it about them that gets to you? And I said, well, one is lazy and the other takes too much care of herself. And my sister nun replied, well, you ought to be more lazy and take better care of yourself, too. We tend to project our ideas and the way things are supposed to be. And when we see with the heart, we see in a different way, not brooding over the faults of others, but offering a kind of respect and decency to whomever we're with. And again, it's not an ideal, as Norman says. It's a possibility. We can become the medicine, as the Buddha said. Others will be cruel. We shall be kind. Thus, we should incline the heart. Others will be greedy. We shall be generous. Thus, we shall incline the heart. Others will speak falsely. We will speak truth. Thus we should incline the heart. Others will be envious and jealous. We will be we shall be appreciative. Thus we shall incline the heart. Others will be arrogant. 
we shall be humble. Thus, we should incline the heart. Others will be without compassion. We shall be established in compassion. Thus, we should incline the heart. This is possible for us. Instead of brooding over the faults of others, we can become the medicine. We can tell the truth. We can stand up for matter, what matters. If others are greedy or hateful, we can be kind. We can be generous. We can be gracious. We become the medicine. The fifth of Atisha's instructions, be grateful to everyone. So here we are, I'll review them. Explore the nature of timeless awareness, which is who you really are. Don't be swayed so much, I'll put in that phrase in little parentheses, by outer circumstances, they will continue to change. Consider all phenomena to be like dreams, appearing and disappearing. Don't brood over the faults of others. And now Atisha says, be grateful to everyone. And here in Tibet, there's a prayer that says, grant that I will be given enough suffering. It's a prayer inviting suffering. Grant that I will be given enough suffering and difficulty to open in me the great heart of compassion. Imagine praying for it. Be grateful for the difficulties that return you to your wisdom. You get angry at the system, at leaders, or the way things are, and so forth. But if you listen deeply underneath the anger, underneath the way you want it to be underneath the frustration it's there because you care underneath it all is love or you wouldn't be so upset tune into the caring be grateful for it all as mary oliver says and therefore i look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood and i think of each life as a flower as common as a field daisy and is singular, and each body a line of courage and something precious to this earth. Underneath all of it, we do care. And this is really the magic in the place of gratitude. There's so much to be grateful for. Each amazing day as the sun rises, the Leaping greenly spirits of trees, as E.E. E. Cumming says, in the blue true dream of sky. Margaret Mead was asked, what was, in her view, the beginning of human civilization? Was it the first spears, tips, or arrowheads they found in ancient rock quarries? Was it the cave paintings or the first clay pots? And she said, no, for me, the beginning of civilization came when we found a skeleton with a broken femur, a broken thigh bone that had looked like it had mended together and healed. 
She said, because in the wild, if an animal breaks its leg, it can't run. It can't get to water. It can't escape the predators. It can't get food and it will die. But this human being whose skeleton we found had broken their leg and others had obviously picked them up and taken them to a place of safety and got them water and fed them and helped them to heal so that they could again move and be part of the human family. She said, in this, this is the beginning of human civilization. To be grateful for everyone, to all that's given to us, so that it might open our great heart of compassion, so that it might allow us to see the world with kindly eyes, said the Buddha, and with an inner freedom. And then Atisha says, the last, there are two more of his instructions. At all times, simply rely on a joyful mind. This is the great instruction from Atisha. And it parallels exactly the instructions from the Buddha, who says, Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Quiet the mind, tend the heart. And free from fears and attachments, know the sweet joy of living in the way. This is not just a poem. It's in pith instructions to your heart. Live in joy and peace, even among the troubled. Become that beacon, that steady being of peace. Live in joy and health, even among the pandemic. Live in joy and love, even among those who hate. Let yourself rely on the joyful heart and mind, as Atisha says. We're in this for the long haul, you know. What we need in the long term is wellness and oneness. And it may take a year or a decade or 100 years or 500 years. But we know what the human world needs. It has all this remarkable out of development. And now it requires the development of the human heart. For all the problems, you know, the racism and continuing warfare and injustice and economic disadvantage and all of these things, they're all born in the human heart. No amount of technology can solve them, but we can. And if we point ourselves in this direction, then even our difficulties then can become a place to carry a joyful mind. One Hasidic master puts it this way, if you never want to see the face of hell, when you come home from work at night, dance with your kitchen towel. And if you're worried about waking up your family, take off your shoes. There's an invitation to well-being that's been passed around hand to hand and heart to heart from one generation to another. The well-being that sees the luminous, 
golden light at the end of the day as we approach sunset in this time on our planet or the sparkling of stars or the flash of lightning in the cloud or the budding of the trees now in late spring and the popping of the leaves and the blossoms and the gaze of a child or of your beloved. At all times, simply rely on a joyful mind. We can do this. We can carry our ocean of tears and the sorrows and grieve properly. We can honor our fears. We can honor when we flunk the course. And underneath it all, like Ram Dass, I'll trade you one Neem Karoli Baba and uh, Ted Williams for a Ramana Maharshi and a Babe Ruth. We can all see this as the game of joy that we play to learn how to love each other more and more deeply. And finally, the last of Atisha's admonitions and instructions, he says, and don't expect a standing ovation. You know, you do this not because of how it looks or how others see you or how you're supposed to be or all that kind of internalized stuff, which we all have. And you can hold that with tenderness and say, thank you. Thank you for trying to make me a good person. I've listened to your voice a long time. Thank you for your opinion. Don't expect a standing ovation because it's not about how it looks. It's about what we know deeply in ourselves really matters. It's the gifts that you received in that first meditation when you visited the healing temple, the gifts that said, what is the lesson for you to learn in this time? The gift that was the symbol of what it is you have to offer back to the world. And maybe the question is, what would love have me do today? What would love have me do this day? And I know there is a feeling among many that I talk to of helplessness, a sense of not being able to make the huge changes that we're called upon to do at this time, and that we collectively have to imagine and uplift in our way. But I'm reminded of the starfish story, and you all probably have heard it, of a man walking along a beach in which some huge tidal wave has stranded 10,000 starfish on this two-mile stretch of beach, a beach, pushed them in from the ocean, and there they are. And in front of him, he sees an old fellow who stoops over to pick up a starfish and throws it into the ocean and walks a few steps further and picks up another starfish and throws it into the ocean. And finally, our young friend catches up to the old man and says, old man, what are you doing? He looks at the old man. He says, this beach, it's covered with 10,000 starfish throwing a fish in. I mean, what does that matter? Throwing one back. And the old man smiled and said he picked up the next starfish and tossed it and said, matters to that one. And what matters is actually sometimes in the smallest gesture, 
What would love have me do today? If you don't grow in love through the pandemic, somehow suffering will have won if we don't grow in love. So we have to stop and remember who we really are. That we are timeless awareness itself born into this body. We are consciousness. And from this place of consciousness, we can be playful. We can speak the truth. We can stand up for what matters with love. We can have a deep inner freedom. Send out prayers on the wind as you dance through this mystery. For you are consciousness and timeless awareness. And every time a baby is born, we greet them and hold them with love. And when a dear one dies, the hand we hold is a gesture of love. Who you are is loving awareness itself. Remember this. Honor it. Embody it. Trust it. It is your own true nature. It is your home. <laughs> <laughs>